Hello and welcome to Bardcast, the Shakespeare podcast. I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And today we're starting off Hamlet. This is going to be Act 1. Um, we have done an earlier episode called um, What is Hamlet, where we kind of talk about the printing and stuff of that, so we'll leave that alone. You can go back and find that if you want to check it out. Yeah, this is more about the play itself and slogging through it no matter how long it takes. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're dividing each act into its own episode. The basic idea is to make it as though we were seeing this for the first time. We don't have any information from the future when we discuss what's going on in a given act. Well, we do. We've seen it. Right. But when we talk about Hamlet's character, we'll be talking about Hamlet's character in Act 1. Right. We're not going to be talking about him as the, you know, revenge-obsessed kind of dumb guy from the later acts. (laughs) That's harsh i don't have a high opinion of hamlet oh i guess we'll have to get into that. the character i mean the play i like yeah ideally someone would walk into an actual showing of hamlet not knowing anything about it and see it as its own play completely fresh i don't know that that's possible because of the way that hamlet has kind of permeated our culture with american education systems it is likely that someone could get to this this stage of development where they would want to see a play without ever having heard anything directly about hamlet but even then hamlet has so many phrases and themes that run through that they probably encountered it indirectly at least yeah so it's kind of a dream if you don't know anything about hamlet i would say find a way to watch it in a theater before listening to this as its own thing that would be fantastic or a movie i mean there's some good movie versions so this is a little bit of a different format. Uh, we're going to deal with Act 1 by itself. Act 1, as all Act 1s are, is establishing both the plot and the feel of the play. Throughout, and the major characters. Yes. Throughout Act 1, we kind of get this feeling of increasing wrongness, uh, that something is wrong in the state of Denmark, as they say. And things just kind of are dark and gloomy and disturbing and leading towards something bad. So we're going to start with Act 1, Scene 1. People like to talk about how the opening question of the play is something profound or meaningful. Who's there? Right, where this guard, uh, presumably up on a wall, asks another guard who's there, and then they talk about who they are. Bernardo and Francisco. Mm -hmm. The idea is he's been standing watch. This other guy has come to relieve him. And they're all wrapped up because it's this cold night. So they actually have to kind of unveil themselves to show who they are. They don't recognize each other at first. Yeah, I don't think this has any deep meaning at all. Right. I think what happened is people lavished so much praise on Hamlet that they almost ran out of things to talk about. And so someone just looked at the first phrase and said, oh, that sort of has a meaning because this play is about who these people are. I think they miss the fact that all plays are about who these people are. All stories, really. Right. Unless it's a story about a natural event, the essential nature of all stories is to find out who people are. So it's kind of an inane thing to talk about. Horatio shows up, and he's an actual real character and not just a guard. Right. He is a scholar, as they say. And Hamlet's best bud. Mm -hmm. He's been summoned here because the guards describe that they have been haunted essentially that at the stroke of midnight a ghost appears and he is here to witness that and then surprisingly a ghost appears right they even specifically say that as that star is at the very point at which it is now the ghost always appears and then the ghost appears i mean they point out that it actually looks a lot like the dead king Mm -hmm. so they want horatio to speak to it because he's a knowledgeable guy who might know about ghosts Mm -hmm. and so horatio says hey talk to me 
and then the ghost disappears. What art thou that usurp this time of night, together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march? By heaven I charge thee, speak, and it walks away. Um, there's a lot of great poetry in this. I'm going to try to read a lot of quotes from it. Yeah, don't worry, I'll be here to scorn you for that. <laughs> but yes, they do specifically say he looks exactly like the king. He has the very armor on when he, the ambitious Norway combated. So frowned he once when, in an angry parl, he smote the sledded Pollux on the ice. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's clear from this, though, that the old king was a warrior king. He fought the Poles, he fought the Norwegians. Mm -hmm. A warrior more than a king. And then it shows up again, and then suddenly there's dawn and it vanishes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get some backstory here saying that our valiant Hamlet, the king, the previous ghost king, wh who we'll probably refer to as... Um, the king or the ghost. Or King Hamlet, because our, our Hamlet is merely a prince. Let's just call him the king. It's easier. Right. King Hamlet, the king, the ghost, did slay Fortinbras. The elder Fortinbras. Who is the king of Norwegian. Norway. Norway, who is the king of Norway. You don't know a lot about geography, <laughs> do you? So the idea is he had basically bet that he could beat Norway's king in a fight. He did, and so he won all these lands. But the young Fortinbras, the next in line, is raising up his own private army to go win those back in battle. Horatio mentions that this is a portentous time, that like the fall of Julius Caesar, you've got all these fantastic magical things happening, that stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, and the moon was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. So this is another idea that when bad things happen, especially to kings, and this unnatural stuff happens, it's echoed in the real world. Shakespeare's mostly just advertising his other plays at this point. <laughs> this is right after he would have made Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the scene, Horatio says, hey, let's go talk to uh, Hamlet, see what he thinks about all this stuff. So in scene two, we get to meet the sort of villain of the play, Claudius, who is the ghost king's brother, Right, we'll be referring to him as Claudius, even though he is the king. Yes. We're not going to call him king. We're going right, to call, call him Claudius, Claudius yeah. to avoid confusion. So it's the ghost, Hamlet, the prince, and Claudius. Starts out with the king kind of summarizing his current system. Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and it is befitted to bear our hearts in grief, and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature, that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we as twere with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth and funeral and dirge and marriage, in equal scale, weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. The funeral has just happened, and he's already married the previous queen. Who is uh, Gertrude. Right, who is now the queen again, but to a new king. Mm -hmm. Hence the sometimes sister, sometimes wife. They were siblings-in-law, but now are married. Yeah, and then there, he's talking to a couple of uh, courtiers, and they don't actually do anything except go off on a mission. Right, this is where we kind of get a view of Claudius as king, because he says... Young Fortinbras is trying to get this invasion going, but probably his father, the king of Norway, hasn't heard about it. So we will send a message to the king of Norway saying, you don't know what's going on, you've got to stop this now. We get the feeling that Claudius is more wise as a king than perhaps... He's a more of a peacemaker than a conqueror. Mm -hmm. So this is where we meet 
Laertes. Laertes is the son of Polonius, one of uh, Claudius's close advisors. Right. There are two families in this act. There's Hamlet's family, mm-hmm. the monarchy, essentially. And there's Laertes's family, who is Polonius and Ophelia. Yeah, Laertes simply wishes to return home. He wants to go to, back to France, where he's a student. Right. And the king doesn't mind. Uh, mm-hmm. He just says, as long as Polonius is cool with it, it's fine with me. Mm-hmm. So Laertes is allowed to leave, and the king turns his attentions to the title character Hamlet, who says that the the current king is a little more than kin and less than kind. So but, Hamlet uh, is not a fan of Claudius. He's not a, a fan of anything right now. He is still wearing black in mourning for the previous king and is still down in the dumps. Everyone can tell. The queen asks him why he is so dark and would rather have him dress normally. He says that it's all perfectly appropriate to be still in grief, that his father is dead, his king is dead. The king seems to be an entirely reasonable person. In response, he simply says, "'Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these mourning duties to your father. But you must know your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his, and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow." Basically, he's saying, look, everyone dies eventually, and their children get over it. Everyone loses a father. They all get over it. To persevere in obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness. So this is actually even against religion, to be so obstinate about this grief that you have. It is unmanly grief. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven. Hamlet wants to go back to school in Wittenberg. They'd rather he stay. Yeah, though he says it's most retrograde to our desire, (laughs) which is a really uh, weird way of saying. And we beseech you, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, our chiefest courtier, cousin, and our son. So he wants to incorporate the prince into his life. Yeah, he wants to fully adopt him, basically get be treated as a father. He seems like a nice guy, I think, is the importance of this. And Hamlet does agree based on the queen's request to stay. He says he will obey the queen, but will he basically doesn't acknowledge the king, Claudius. And then everyone leaves and Hamlet gets his first soliloquy. Yeah, all of Hamlet's soliloquies are great. This is a good one. It shows that he's kind of whiny and annoying. <laughs> well, he has a heart of a poet. So he immediately, upon everyone leaving, wishes to die. Oh, that this too solid flesh could melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. So first he wishes simply to melt. There is some, some people think that instead of solid flesh, it should be soiled flesh, sullied flesh. I see sullied f- flesh in front of me. Yeah. Solid flesh is a much more strong metaphor, because it's solid flesh could melt, thaw, and resolve into a dew. So we've got kind of the forms of matter there. And that makes more sense, because Hamlet doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. He kind of is disgusted with everything, but yeah, I don't think that that is the right answer. Solid works very well with melt. It's just a correct metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then he complains that God himself has made the rules against suicide, which would be his other solution. He'd prefer to just melt away, but he'd also kill himself if he could. Mm -hmm. How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of the world. Fie on it, oh fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Thank things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. And then he goes on to describe how disgusted he is with his mother for marrying his uncle, who he doesn't view as much of a man at all. 
much less than the Hercules of his father. He also reveals that his father died two months ago. So it's not like he is suddenly in grief or anything. It's been two months. That's kind of a while. Right. Indeed. Everyone's reaction to him is appropriate. Uh, Here is one of the first of his famous quotes. Frailty, thy name is woman. So he's not merely angry at Gertrude specifically. He's mad at women in general, which will continue to come up throughout the play. Then Horatio and a couple of guards come in to tell him about the ghost. His ghost dad. Good movie. <laughs> um, this is actually the prequel to Ghost Dad. So first uh, they have a little banter, just uh, Hamlet asking Horatio why he's here. and Hamlet complains that the wedding was so soon after the funeral that they still had the food from the funeral to furnish the, the marriage. Mm-hmm. Just... He's wholly disgusted with it, but no one else seems to be that concerned about it. It's rapid, but it's not the sin that he seems to think it is. And it's, you know, important politically. Mm -hmm. As we'll see later, as they'll point out several times, royalty doesn't get to decide who and when they marry. Not usually, at least. Right. Henry VIII. Right. Um, It's usually more of a political thing, though. Yes. So they tell him that a figure like your father, armed at point exactly, head to toe, appears before these guards and with solemn march goes slowly and stately by them. Thrice he walked by their oppressed and fear-surprised eyes. So we get specifically that he looks like the father, he is dressed the exact same, and later they ask whether his beard is white, and it is. Mm. So we find out that Hamlet's uh, ghost dad had a great big beard. (laughs) Very important. Right, so he agrees to go see the ghost. Then we head off to scene three in Polonius' house. Right, this is the Laertes family. Laertes is just ready to go. Yep, he's uh, talking to his sister and... They. It looks like they're a happy, fairly happy family. Right. He, cons- he is concerned for Ophelia and both her innocence and her well-being, essentially saying that Hamlet probably even sincerely is propositioning you. He's probably sincerely saying, "I would, I love you," all this stuff. But in reality, both the passing of time and political necessity will probably make him abandon you if you give yourself to him. So. Don't do it. Be afraid. Let fear be your word. It's probably a good idea, too, because Hamlet, crazy. But they don't know that yet. No. Uh, So then Polonius comes in with some great advice. Right. As Polonius enters the stage, Laertes says, I stay too long, but here my father comes. A double blessing is a double grace. Occasion smiles upon a second leave. Essentially, he's saying, "Uh uh-oh, I should go now before he catches me. But Polonius calls to him, yet here, Laertes, aboard, aboard, for shame. And says, you should go aboard, aboard the ship. And then immediately doesn't let him leave. (laughs) He gives him his blessing again and has a few precepts, which are very cliched. His advice, although wise, is so cliched as to be almost meaningless. Mm Mm-hmm. Just the kind of general stuff you would see in any sort of basic advice thing. Give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thoughts his act. So don't say what you think, and don't do anything that you haven't thought through. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. So be friendly, but don't be too friendly. This sort of vague, meaningless advice. The most famous line from this speech is, Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Ah, you've forgotten. To thine own self be true. Ah, yes, that one's probably a little more famous. Yeah, Hamlet, 
as we've said earlier, is nothing but cliches because it's got so many good lines in it. Not so much cliches is just things everyone has heard, but they all started here mostly. You know, I think that might be the definition of a cliche. Is it something that everyone has heard? I thought hmm, I might be. I'll, I'll have to look at a dictionary someday. Anyway, but not today. <laughs> Very common expressions in our zeitgeist. Yes. Although. I think you'll find that a hundred years ago, Hamlet expressions were far more common. A lot of them now that are referred to in textbooks as being very common, you do not hear at all. Like what? Um, to the manner born. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, and so eventually Laertes manages to leave. Yeah, manages to escape Polonius. And Polonius, in turn, goes to Ophelia and says, you have to be wary of around Hamlet. Lord Hamlet believes so much in him that he is young, and with a larger tether may he walk than may be given you. In few Ophelia, they do not believe his vows, for they are brokers, not of that dye which their investments show, but mere implorations of unholy suits, breathing like sanctified and pious bods the better to beguile. So he's just making promises. He doesn't have to follow up on them. They're not, they're not real. Mm-hmm. He knows when the blood burns how prodigal the soul lends the tongue vows. So he doesn't blame Hamlet. He doesn't think that Hamlet is a villain. He simply thinks that no person of that age with the blood boiling is able to be constant. Mm-hmm. And Ophelia does promise to obey in the same way that Hamlet promised to obey the queen. Yep. Except she's probably a little less sullen about it. <laughs> well, everyone is. On to scene four, which is the same platform that we started this play on. It's also very cold. Yep, because Denmark. And it's midnight. Mm -hmm. And also Hamlet says, it is very cold. (laughs) Well, that's how we know. Yes. It's best not to try to infer too much with Shakespeare. You can get yourself into trouble. Sticking with stuff that they specifically say is usually a good system. Anyway, we hear that there's some trumpets and some cannons going off in the distance. The king is throwing a party, which also disgusts Hamlet. They are getting drunk. And here we find hamlet's two cliches in one sentence that i am a native here and to the manner born it is a custom more honored in the breach than the observance so as i mentioned earlier to the manner born is not an expression that we use anymore what does it mean it basically means i was born in this place so i am born to these manners so although i should like this party because the manners of this place would include having this party i'm born to that but i don't like okay and what does a custom more honored in the breach than the observance mean, Jeff? Uh, it would mean that it's they don't do the custom very often. False. That is the modern meaning of that expression. It is actually a misunderstanding of that quotation. What he actually means is there is more honor to be gained by not following the custom than observing the custom. Oh, so he's saying... They're all having a party, and even though it's the custom, it's not very honorable. Exactly. They would gain more honor by uh, breaching this rule than by following it. Okay. I was going to guess that next. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, your what you said is what people mean nowadays when they say that expression. I don't actually hear that people say it very often. The, the, again, Shakespeare yeah. quotes have really fallen out of currency in the past hundred years. Mm. Anyway, he has another good speech. And the ghost arrives, prompting Hamlet to say another one of his cliches, Angels and ministers of grace, defend us. Be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned, bring with thee errors from heaven or blast from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable, thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane. 
I could probably just quote all of this and it'd be great. Not well, not it, for the listener, <laughs> but it would be great dialogue. Yes. Like the just the language in this is so beautiful. And then the ghost uh, beckons Hamlet to go alone with him. Right. And they don't want to let him go. Horatio particularly begs and they even physically try to stop him hamlet says i do not set my life at a pin's fee like he wouldn't pay a pin for his life and for my soul what can it do to that being a thing immortal as itself so he doesn't care about his life and his soul is immortal so what's the risk Mm -hmm. when they do physically restrain him unhand me gentlemen by heaven i'll make a ghost of him that lets me i say away Mm -hmm. after he leaves they say oh he's going crazy i guess we should follow him Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. But this is all the entire sense of disgust and things are wrong. It's in the middle of the night. There's a ghost. Something's rotten. I, if I were at home and a ghost showed up, I'd be pretty freaked out, too. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have, like, cannons and guns and stuff all around. Here we find that the ghost does speak. We're on scene five now. Yes. Um, although you could probably do this as one scene if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fasten fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres. Thy knotted and combined locks depart, and each particular hair to stand on end, like quills upon the fretful porcupine he's doomed to walk the night in the real world and you can't tell anyone how to why right in the day he is confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away so this is kind of a limbo idea like the catholic church has where you spend kind of an intermediary term until you actually get to go to heaven i think that's what he's saying that he's in purgatory right i thought he was just a ghost well, he's a ghost when he's on Earth, but he's having his sins burned away during the day. Oh, okay. Is what he's saying. I, I don't know that that's really the Catholic doctrine <laughs> specifically, but it, but that seems to be what he's saying. But he is forbidden to say what actually happens in the afterlife. He is forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house. But he does say, if thou didst ever thy dear father love, revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Murder most foul. Hamlet immediately agrees. We don't see the Hamlet that we'll find later. This Hamlet is bold. He is immediately willing to do it. He even says, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love may sweep to my revenge. And the ghost says, I find the apt. A serpent stung me. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But know, thy noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. He's basically saying that uh, Claudius killed him. Yeah, although people say a snake bit me. Actually, a snake in the form of a man bit me. Mm-hmm. The ghost also seems to have the disgust with the both the queen and Claudius. One to his shameful lust to the will of my most seeming virtuous queen. So he seems to be on Hamlet's side on the entire finding the queen disgusting for marrying him. Although he might just be mad about being murdered. That too. He doesn't seem like a very nice guy, even from what we hear about him. Like when he's not when he's not a ghost. Yeah, he's a fighter and a brawler. And then he says that uh, Claudius poisoned him by pouring ear poison in his ear. Right, which is kind of a metaphor for Claudius's entire system of lying, pouring poison in people's ears. Right. It's all. It's literally poisoning ears, where he figuratively poisons with his words. Mm-hmm. 
Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. Don't actually do anything against the queen. Mm. Just just get revenge. He, he basically says, leave her soul to heaven. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves. Uh, adieu, adieu, Hamlet, remember me. <laughs> yeah. So Hamlet has a complete change, says, I will forget everything else. This will be my life. Oh, most pernicious woman. Oh, villain, villain, smiling, damned villain. My tables, my tables. Meet it is, I set it down, that one may smile and smile and be a villain. Another famous quote. So then Horatio and the guard arrives. Yep. So he makes them promise not to give away the secret. Don't tell anyone about the ghost. Right. And they say, we weren't going to, we're fine. They, they kind of treat it casually, and he is very serious about it. Um, he insists that they swear on his sword. A sword is a cross because of the handguard, so it's swearing upon a cross. And they still don't want to. I think they're getting creeped out by Hamlet's insistence until the ghost cries from under the stage, Swear! I assume that Shakespeare's time they had the same ghost voice. Makes uh. sense. So several times the ghost has to tell them to swear and swear by his sword. This is a really weird bit because Hamlet actually kind of says there's a voice coming from the ground. That's an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's saying that it's coming from the cellar. They're on a they're on a wall, so it sounds like he's talking about the stage itself. Mm-hmm. Well, he says, "Well said, old mole. Canst work at the earth so fast?" Right. So it it's like he's joking about his dad being dead and a ghost underground. Yeah. Well, Shakespeare kind of likes to just throw jokes in inappropriate places. Right. Uh, Shakespeare loves a joke more than he loves anything or wittiness and uh, good poetry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. That's one of the other most famous lines from this play. Mm-hmm. I'm told that your philosophy means our philosophy, like the science not he's not dissing Horatio specifically. He's dissing like uh, book learning. Mm-hmm. He's saying that there is more to the world than just books and the stuff that we think we know, like science and all mm-hmm. that, uh, which in fact is true. I mean, we found that to be the case. Yep. Ghosts aren't real, though. Probably not. <laughs> right. So he sets out determined to get revenge, and that's the end of the act. Yep. They swear on his sword, and then. Uh... They head off together. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the characters. So as as we've said, King Hamlet is this decisive man of action who is dead and a ghost. Mm -hmm. And kind of ruins everyone's lives by uh, showing up. Right. But when he was alive, he was this decisive man of action Mm -hmm. and a warrior who beat foreign nations and killed people. And even... As a ghost, he's still an angry, mean guy. And he's apparently uh, suffering for his various sins. sins. Yeah. Um, there's kind of an ongoing question that seems to be pointless to me about whether the ghost is a real ghost. Throughout the play, I think we find pretty clearly that it is. I mean, I, if it were just a hallucination, then only Hamlet would see it. But right. multiple people see it. People come to him before he's even heard of it and say, we've repeatedly seen it. They all agree on what it looks like. They all agree on when and what it is. So it's definitely something supernatural that looks like the ghost of his father. Or just some crazy guy in a disguise. But <laughs> There's a secondary question as to whether it's a ghost and a demon or something because Hamlet even brings that up. Are you a ghost or an angel from heaven or from hell? What are you? I will speak to you anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's more open to debate and never really resolved. Right. When you talk about supernatural stuff, anything could be true. But he does have the personality and the knowledge and the interests of the king. So I think it's reasonable to say it's him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if it's him, and the, that makes the play have one interpretation. If it's not him, then Hamlet becomes a lot more of a sucker. It's often been said in various books that Shakespeare probably played the part of the ghost of Ham of the king himself. This has no basis. Yes, but it's said everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that we have is someone long after Shakespeare died say, said that Shakespeare played quote kingly roles. Yeah. Uh, let's look at Hamlet himself. So he he starts out as this kind of, uh, I don't like you, ghost dad. Or, I don't like you, Claudius. You're not my real dad. Basically. And uh, then once they leave him alone, he turns out to be far more mopey than we thought. He wants to die. He hates the world, and he hates women, and he hates his mother. So usually that's kind of a facade for the other way. Like, teenagers aren't actually as mopey as they seem, but he's worse. And then this kind of outlet of being allowed to get revenge kind of changes his who he is yeah he just needed something to motivate him in this case murder right he he, it's like he can solve his problems now at the end of this act claudius as i mentioned earlier he does seem to be he's a very reasonable guy yeah he's an able administrator it seems like it's certainly in foreign policy he knows what to do Mm -hmm. he's Uh, nice he's very nice to hamlet who he doesn't have to be he's not his son so it is sort of against his interest to treat him well because presumably he would rather have his own possible son be his heir but he treats him very well um, says that he should like to treat him as a son and as part of the court we don't get much off of Gertrude yet right she is obviously concerned for Hamlet but that's basically it yeah what we get are a lot of reports about her people saying that she's inconstant that she's not virtuous for Mm -hmm. marrying this other king I don't know that she really had much of a choice. It's not like this is the era of the liberated woman, especially when you're a queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have the Polonius family. Right, who I think the star of this really is Pophelia. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, the star of this act, I guess, might be Polonius. Yeah, well, well, in this act, uh, we see that Polonius is close advisor to the king and kind of a buffoon. Right, yeah, everyone... Um, the interpretation that I go with this play is the M.R. Ridley book that I keep talking about. He essentially says that we should view Polonius as this guy with wisdom who is just old and kind of can't sell it right yeah. now. Like he's a great advisor to a king, not so much as a father, though. Mm, yeah, he's not. He's no longer as sharp as he used to be. So he can he knows the cliches and he probably has reasons for the cliches, but no one's that interested when he has to say them. He's just kind of seen as a bother by people. But if you make him into a clown, that diminishes his value. Right. I mean, why, why Why would the king keep him around if he's just a clown? And why have him as a character if he's just a clown? Because that... Shakespeare loves clowns. Right. Well, he wouldn't be a very funny yeah. clown. Then there's Laertes, who's kind of like uh, almost a mirror of Hamlet. Right. He's another person of the same cloth he's this young kind of dashing man he's obviously not depressed because nothing yeah he's just happy he's happy he wants to go back he likes he loves his sister he wants to go back to school right and he's also a mirror of hamlet in the way that he cares for ophelia both of them are kind of vying for control of ophelia obviously he doesn't lust after ophelia but though we haven't seen much of hamlet and ophelia yet so right but they both want to control ophelia 
And then so far of Ophelia, we don't act- she hasn't actually said that much. She's essentially just agreed to back off Hamlet. Don't get too uh, attached to him because he's probably just going to uh, leave you. Right. So I think the thing that we see from Act 1 is that this just looks like a revenge play. It just looks like there's going to have some complications probably with Ophelia, but Hamlet is spurred on. He has his energy now. He knows what to do. He's going to have to kill a bunch of people, and then he's going to win. I mean, that's what the original Hamlet story is. Hamlet pretends to be crazy, finds his time and place, and then kills the king. What we find in the later acts are all the complications. It seems like a simple play right now, but it's it gets a lot more complicated. Favorite line from the first act? <sighs> I don't know. Um, I like all the speeches, which aren't really lines as such, but I like favorite them a lot. cliche. <laughs> um, I like how the breach in the observance has changed over time. Okay, personally, I'm a fan of. Uh, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. Dang, that's the best one. You win. Yep, that's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, I think the important thing is just to take this play as it comes, not to think of the future and kind of back play it on this, because when you watch a play, you don't... No rewinding. Yeah, there's no rewinding. You don't have time to think about, oh, but wait a second, if he's a student then, then why is he so much older now? Stop, little details like that. You don't have the time to do the math. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah. um, so M.R. Ridley talks about the side characters, and I think this is kind of notable. Um Ophelia herself, and for that matter, matter, also Polonius and Laertes, profoundly moving though one of them is, and illuminating though all three of them are to an understanding of Hamlet's character, are, when one comes to look at them, almost entirely irrelevant to the plot. A lot of the characters and a lot of the lines of dialogue in this play are irrelevant to the plot, but they're this beautiful poetry that Shakespeare has, which is why this play is so much more than its source. So, wait, he's saying that the Polonius family is irrelevant? Essentially. I completely disagree. You don't need them. Yes. You'll, as the further acts come along, it'll be very clear that they are very necessary. They, uh, we can discuss this more later, but I completely disagree. So the trick with the side characters is to make them into full people, not to make Polonius into a clown or to make Laertes into a big dumb jerk or to make Ophelia into a weird, crazy person. And that's it. The trick is to kind of give them a personality. Mm-hmm. Which Shakespeare does, so you just have to act it out. So yeah, that's uh, Act 1. Yeah. Next time, Act 2. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, we might just skip Act 2, go straight to Act 3, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a better act. Anyway, um, we do have some news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan North, the author of Dinosaur Comics, has made his own Choose Your Own Adventure book, although it's not called Choose Your Own Adventure because that's a trademark. Yeah, um, it's called To Be or Not To Be, That Is The Adventure which is a choosable path adventure uh, based off of Hamlet. Right, so it's the same idea as Choose Your Own Adventure, but it's a choosable path adventure for trademark purposes. Yes. Apparently, it just goes crazy all over the place. You can actually choose to play as the king who dies right away and is a time-traveling ghost. It's complicated. I think. Once it comes out, though, read it. Yeah, it looks really good. Everything Ryan North does is good, so definitely A-plus thumbs up all over the place even without having seen it at all. One other thing, we are hoping to have a super secret special episode for our next episode, so look forward to that. And we'll see you next time on Bardcast. So let's have one further addendum to Hamlet's two solid flesh speech. 
In it, he talks about how he wishes his too solid flesh could dissolve into a dew, how he wishes, essentially, that he could die. I think there's two different ways to look at that speech, and therefore to look at Hamlet's character, because these soliloquies are the most revelatory things about Hamlet's character. First, you could say that Hamlet is looking at himself, his essence, as being this too solid flesh, and therefore he is kind of disgusted at himself and more of this kind of thoroughly depressed person with a poetical heart, and he wishes to be annihilated entirely. The other way is if Hamlet was looking at this too solid flesh as something separate from him physically and spiritually. So he is a soul, and his body is this gross matter that he wishes he could be separated from. I think that if you look at the text, the most valid interpretation is to say that he does feel himself a soul separated from his body, but joined by his temporary life. But I think you could play it either way, and it sort of gives the character more of a physical sense of self-loathing or sort of a intellectual distance from the events. So if he's saying, oh, this flesh which disgusts me is separate from me, then it's a sort of thing where he seems aloof, distant, intellectual, almost condescending, where if he's saying that this too solid flesh is part of him and he wishes to be just completely gone, then he's sort of disgusted and disgusting in his own eyes. I think he might seem more sympathetic, more grounded. I think those are the two major options that you can choose for that speech. And this speech is important because it's our first real look at what and who Hamlet is.